Hi, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm your host, John Pryor. Today, we're going to be talking to Brian Ritz, Director of Data Science Solutions at SPINS. SPINS connects wellness brands to their retail and omnichannel data, and they've partnered with over 300 brick-and-mortar retailers so far. SPINS brings advanced analytics to their clients, allowing for deep, fact-based decision-making. As a company that's been around for the last 20 years, SPINS has worked hard to innovate amid constantly changing trends, client expectations, and new technologies. In this podcast, Brian, who's been at SPINS for the last four years, talks about how working from data has changed from aggregation to insights, building a team that stays open-minded to new solutions, and how to be a leader. Brian, welcome. You've been in the business for a while. I'd like to get a sense from you of what's changed in the past 20 years. And what I mean by that is tech and algorithms were really were a means to an end as opposed to now because of machine learning and other elements. It's now a critical part of defining kind of what the value is, what the product's going to be. How have you seen tech evolved over the past couple of decades? Yeah. So one thing that stands out that's changed is what used to be called analysts and they're, they're now called data scientists, I'd say. So I think, I mean, just the term data scientist is a newer term. I started my career at 8451 and I was an analyst. And the same and 8451 exact job. was what? what 8451 is, uh, they're, they're essentially the, the data science arm of Kroger, one of the largest retailers here in the US, grocery retailers, yeah. They've got a whole company just dedicated to data analytics there. And there were no data scientists when I joined. It was all just analysts and senior analysts, you know, you have that. And then I think this was maybe either six or seven years ago, roughly, they all just, they changed everyone's data scientists. And, you know, their jobs, I don't think necessarily changed. I wasn't at the company when, when they made the switch, but there's this term, data scientists, and it's it's an extremely broad term that ranges from, you know, the people who make Siri on your phone, AI, to, you know, me just out of college uh, running SQL queries on retail data, on Kroger data, essentially. And, and it's kind of lumped together. And, you know, I've had some good conversations with some folks at SPINS and externally about you know, starting to separate some of these apart, these types of jobs apart. We haven't done this at spins, but I've, I've kind of had the thought that for more of that, what used to be that analyst role, I almost think the term insights engineer is, is a little more apt to that even than just data scientists. Because what you're really doing is, is storytelling and you're, you're coming up with an insight and backing up that insight via data. Whereas machine learning is a little more of a, a technique for prediction, essentially. Um, it's a little more closely tied with finding patterns in data, exploiting those patterns to make predictions on new data. So I haven't really seen the term insights engineer. And I've kind of, on our team, we don't quite have that, you know, necessarily have that role that I would call an insights engineer, but I always thought it was a good term for that type of, role what used to be the analyst you might have had a an analyst to go look at the data and figure something out but you sort of had to have a an idea of what you were looking for show me the pattern of a certain tell me something about a certain set of customers so let's talk a little bit more about how to get better at getting useful insights from data i've been going to grocery stores for decades with a loyalty card and i don't feel like the data that is being used does anything for me i mean I'll buy four boxes of pasta at the checkout and I get a coupon 
to buy four more boxes of the same pasta. I mean, tomato sauce, anyone? And data does affect and should affect merchandising too. And you know, we all know about that urban legend in the past where you know you should be putting beer close to diapers for the dad that might be in there buying diapers. We do have this data though. So how can you help on coupons and merchandising, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Provided the data. Yeah, absolutely. You know, right now we're working with recommendations um, for what to put on the shelf and what to, um, you know, what should retailers carry that they're not currently carrying uh, is a big question that we have because Spins has uh, the largest product database in terms of attributes and products of any of the data providers, essentially. And so it's a big com- competitive advantage. We can bring all of that product intelligence to bear on problems like, what should I put on the shelf or what should I promote? What trending attributes are out there that I'm not currently carrying that I'm missing out on and and could expand my category? We spend a lot of time thinking about privacy and what I want to share. And I would love for my grocery store to say, we're not targeting you. You tell us what characteristics of you as a purchaser you're interested in. Like you would say, I'm interested in bulk. I need bulk purchases. So just show me bulk or I'm interested in boutique, or I'm interested in a certain type of ethnic food or certain sugar-free drinks. If I put drinks up, just by default, yeah, I'm almost thinking of the days of a, of a faceted search. I, we clearly don't want to go Certainly. back to those days. But if there was a way that I could do a faceted way of kind of identifying myself, and I was able to keep it, well, we can think about Web3 versus not, but I would keep it to myself. Here's what I would love to share about me. What can you tell me I'd like to buy? You might find an interesting give and take between the the centralized data, which you must have, and then the decentralized attributes, perhaps, of a purchaser. Yeah, that's a good approach. I I like that for a couple of reasons. I would say, one, the privacy that you mentioned is is protected there. And then two, it's actually really, it's much easier problem on the data end. I mean, Ah, if you're doing there too, true, it's simpler. It does. Um, even just a straight filter in that case would get you what you want. You can do more complex things there too, data-wise, certainly of, of uh, you know, correlating across different users that all say the same thing about themselves and kind of, you know, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with the, with the beer and diapers, only you can kind of cross-correlate customers in that same exact manner in that. But, you know, a lot of times with data, the 20% gets you the 80%, essentially. Uh, that would be usually valuable to me. If, yeah, I, but, ticked, if yeah. I did the facet and said, this is the type of thing. In other words, uh, bulk purchases, if it turns out that you know, one's a better price performer or whatever, and, and you find that hundreds of other people in your selected category are interested, that you, you can clearly offer that. So, we're, so there is a linkage between the data and some of the attributes of the, of the purchasers. Yeah. So I'm a product guy at heart, and I'd love to dive more into the product side of development. How do you ensure you're not getting caught up in just the tech and the data science aspect of it, that you end up building something that really isn't helpful to customers? It's funny because people have told me, I feel like I kind of do some a lot of product-like things in a way uh, as the manager of the data science team, essentially, because a lot of times you got to really diagnose the problem you're trying to solve. It's really easy to just uh, sprint past a problem with something that doesn't address the underlying customer needs. Even just identifying the right customer is kind of the first step there too. And then, um, you know, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily necessitate data science 
per se, machine learning per se. I think again, like the data science is the is the wide term. But a lot of times, if you really understand the problem, like you were talking about earlier, the faceted search or the, or the you know, tell me if you like organic or not, and just filter on it is the right solution technologically and from a product perspective as well, like you say. Do you ever see an issue then, because you talk about how much data you've got, is there ever going to get to be too much? Is it, or, or do the, you know, the systems can handle it or you need to add more uh, modeling to it? Because uh, obviously you're collecting more and more data and maybe you're going to collect more data as it relates to potentially users and things. So is that a good thing or a bad thing in your case? So you know, talk to me about your view of just the collection of just the raw collection of product data because you're a product person, right? So it's a trade-off. Uh, there, it comes down to a lot of trade-offs. I mean, you have storing data has a cost. It, it does have a cost. A lot of times people tend to gloss over that, but the bills do add up uh, if you do even just for storing that data, especially across time, you're just, you know, you're slowly, you know, bleeding pennies by the, by the gigabyte there. At the same time, you never know what in the future you might need. So it comes down to really probably uh, knowing a roadmap path forward of where you want to go and what you want to measure, I would say. So really knowing, knowing, having a vision for your product and taking your best shot at what the relevant data will be because yeah, the data has a cost in terms of storing it on Google cloud. It has a terms of cost of, you know, developers got to set up this logging thing and maintain it. And the stuff just adds up. He could be, he could be developing features or, you know, she could be developing a whole new product or something like that. So you need a vision of, of version two and version N. Yeah, that's one that's to, yeah. You really need to have your roadmap, right? That that that's I think the key to good data collection then would be a good roadmap. Is that fair? Yeah, and, and knowing the roadmap, but but also knowing the potential forks in that road to to stretch the analogy too, and and what data you'll need to make those forks. I mean, you know, no one's omniscient. You need to. It's a judgment call. That's why product is hard. Yeah, you're you're defining your problem. You're you're defining what you know, where you might need to pivot or what the, what the, even the potential avenues might be and what you would need to make that decision sure. is, is where you need to be. Yeah. Now as a business is trying to always obviously maintain a competitive edge, then talk to me about one of the most interesting terms that came to be in the past few years, data moats. Yeah. Data businesses uh, are some of the most defensible businesses. I would say one of the most defensible business models. It, it's not, nothing's ironclad, but as a data business and a data business would be essentially a business that is built around a proprietary data set of some sort, whether that is proprietary because of you're the only one that has the technology to acquire it, or if uh, you're the only one with a unique uh, offering to the source of that data, let's say, or network effects. Um, there's, there's different ways to acquire it, but Businesses with data moats are, I would say, it's a really good spot to be as a business because it's called a moat for a reason. The hurdle to overcome that, it requires so much, you know, as a competitor, it would require so much capital and investment to dislodge that because changing technology is hard. You got to figure, you know, there's so much dependency built into the technological system uh, of, of the data business's customers. It's really hard to find people that want to compete against that yeah. and so it's a really defensible business yeah i don't know if it's true or not i don't know if it's another urban legend saying on that funny rat hole i think it's gonna be hard to compete even though they're not necessarily good at it yet 
hard to com potentially compete with Tesla on self-driving because they've been collecting data on every car on the road, whether it's yeah. self They just have, they just, the cameras are running and they're collecting all the data and they're sending it up all the time. Other than in NVIDIA, which I know for you know a long time has been collecting data, but I don't know how many NVIDIA cars there are, you know, or if they're all in the labs or people are using it, but clearly Tesla's got an amazing data mode may give them a competitive advantage it's like a second order competitive advantage they can now deliver maybe better self-driving potentially yeah that's another level i didn't necessarily i'm seeing it now i didn't necessarily see it but when you talk about machine learning and ai you need a lot of data for that and so the, the only people that are the only companies i should say that are have the ability to generate those uh those machine learning algorithms to a certain standard would be the people with the data and that, like you said, second order keeps going, keeps that competitive advantage where you, you know, you're not only don't have the data, but then you don't have the machine learning algorithms or the AI that was built on that. And you know, that AI is in turn making the product way better uh, in a way. And Virtuous cycle. Up there. So yeah. let, we've been talking a little bit about product. Let's stay down the product path just a little bit. You've been yeah. in the industry over a decade. Yeah. Talk to me about companies having to pivot making changes along the way because for whatever reason, usually financial or technological, how, how yeah. do you view uh, the, the fact that companies do need to pivot, startups need to pivot, and even existing companies need to pivot or get potentially disrupted by somebody else? What, what's your sense of that, the need to change? No one's assumptions are going to be perfect. I do think we somewhat in our culture overplay the agnosticism that one must take with product. I think it's a little overplayed that we must learn everything. I think a lot of, especially if you have decade, two decades, three decades of experience, you can bring a lot to the table that you've already learned, but no one's perfect. And yes, a lot of times, you know, hopefully it's not a big pivot. Ideally, it's not a huge, big pivot, but yes, you need to pivot. And that's where having a sound technological base and a, and a, and a sound, uh, development uh, life cycle and the sound development practices uh, would really pay their dividends there. When you, when you have to pivot, it's nice to be agile, to use an overloaded term when things are going great, but you must have that agility when you have to pivot because otherwise you're not gonna be able to do it and your, mm -hmm. your, your business is not going to survive. But to get that solution right sometimes and, Maybe there's an arrogance of history at the same time versus the ability to disrupt it. I'm not sure that there's a right or wrong answer. But sometimes you go going to do a solution and you think you know what the right solution is. You're not open-minded enough. There's a little yeah. confirmation bias in there. Talk to me a little bit about how, how you make sure your teams are, are really thinking, maybe I'll use the phrase, looking left and right as they think about where to take a product. I think I've been pushing the team to have some more of that confidence and their opinions about what the data should look like and what their best methodology would put forth in a way. Yes, I would I understand like understand the point. Confirmation bias is there. It's really easy. It is really easy. And it might just be my personality that I, you know, I don't have that tendency as much as the tendency to doubt and skepticism. So I, I it's probably it's probably more individual of you know, you have to know yourself. Are you more prone to that overconfidence and, and blindness and bias and, and to your own assumptions? Or are you more inhibited in your ultimate efficacy uh, due to 
an overly skeptical outlook on things or an overly skeptical and an analytic outlook that that doesn't allow you to ultimately deliver. Um, at some point, every business is a bet. It's a bet on some assumption. You have to check that assumption and you have to have the right assumption. And it's not only, by the way, the assumption that customers want my product, but there's assumptions like I can deliver the product and you know I can market the product and I can explain the message about my product to the right customers. And there's a whole wide breadth of assumptions, totally aside from the actual thing you're selling that uh, I think is, is somewhat, at least in parts of my career, I've overlooked that. But ultimately, you're making a bet that this that this would work, and uh, and those assumptions, um, you do everything you can to make it valid, but you don't have infinite time. You gotta you gotta roll a dice, and and you know, there's a debate there where how much is luck, how much is is skill. I I come down a lot more on the skill things just because people who are good at things are really good at things. Like the elite of uh, certain fields, whether that's major league baseball or whether that's, you know, South Bend symphony orchestra here, or, um, whether it's, you know, our CEO, Tony, like they are good at what they do and they're legitimately there for a reason. Um, a lot of times too, there's some, and in our culture, sometimes there's uh, a skepticism of, uh, expertise in a way. Mm -hmm. That's the narrative. I, I think that's I think that's fair to say in, mm -hmm. in the culture and within the domain that those people are experts in. They are legitimately there and good for a reason. I want to reiterate: you talked about assumptions, and there was two elements that I think were really great. You're right that you make there's bets, and the bets are built upon assumptions, and they might be right or wrong. And the key is to check your assumptions. Not all the time, get to work, do your job, but periodically step back and check them. You also yeah. did an amazing thing, which is, by the way, the, the job of a CEO is incredibly difficult because across the breadth of an organization, there's a lot of things going on and there's some clearly assumptions going on in each of those organizations. And yeah. hopefully they fit together really well as, as, as well. So I, I, I kind of like, I hadn't really thought about checking your assumptions, not check your assumptions at the door, check your assumptions all the time. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're always getting the feedback. You know, you're always trying to look for the explanations for things you see. Like, you know, I saw sales on uh, Amazon decline 10%. Like, what would explain that? What what went there? Maybe you ran out of stock. Like, maybe there's nothing wrong with your product listing, or maybe there is something wrong with your product listing. Maybe the customers that were there, even just choosing when to dive in deep, what things to let go of. It's all. It all comes down to prudential judgment essentially of, of where you want to take your business and, and what's important at the moment. You know, no one's perfect either, but you got to have a feel for what's, what's important in the moment. I think it's a, it's a great definition of, of what leadership is, no matter whether you're leading a marketing team or a dev team, that that's really the key to being a good leader, to, to recognize that that needs to be done. And, and, when to panic or not panic and, and when to ask the questions. I, I think it's a great discussion. Yeah. Leadership is an interesting tactic. I think some of the, I don't want to come this to come across as like a culture critique, but some of it, I think where I, I think some of our culture misses the mark on leadership is it, it presents in some ways an overly technical view of management and leadership in a way. You can tell me this is a caricature and I we could have that story, but you know, the caricature I'm drawing is you know, the manager is the person who has the spreadsheets and make sure 
the timesheets are filled in and, and, you know, executes this agile methodology at this company and, um, you know, make sure that everything's in order and just, you know, kind of executes technically mm-hmm. uh, in a way when leadership is much more broad than that. It comes down to character. It comes down to, you know, caring for your people holistically and really serving as a, a locus point of direction and vision mm-hmm. in a way. So the way I've always looked at kind of organizational structure, you described when you talk about the technical side, that was a manager, right? So there's a manager. Yeah. There's and that's okay. There. Yeah. And there's a manager. Yeah, yeah. I did. And then you, that need, word. You're right. you, you need a leader. Yeah. And a leader, if the leader says, everybody walk out and take a left turn that you need, yeah. and that's a, a force of will and a personality and a skill set. And yeah. I want to come back to you and talk about communication. So that's, so leadership is an element. And then the third one is vision. And you could be all three in one person. I think you'd be very rare, but if yeah. you need to acknowledge that you need those three piece parts, that'll get there. So I do want to come back to you and talk a little bit about communications because it's much more than just management. And the only way to be a good leader and have vision is to be able yeah. to communicate that and, and the challenges that you see the managers are faced with in terms of communications. Yeah, this is always a tough one for managers and leaders. I've heard the advice and I've seen it in practice, repeating yourself, repeat yourself a whole bunch of times. Cause there's always, you know, especially at a company the size of spins, even companies smaller, you're always going to have new people there. They're always going to hear, there's always going to be people that have heard it for the first time, the same thing for the first time. And um, I've heard it from Tony. Sometimes, you know, I'm glad he doesn't, Tony's our CEO, uh, Tony Olson. He's, he's always iterating his vision. And it's really good. And um, I've always thought, like, man, he's got to get tired of saying that, but he doesn't. I can tell he doesn't because he just wants it so badly. There's just pure repetition. There's clarity in what you're doing, and this is again a tough one. You know, I've sometimes thought, you know, on a on a technology level, when you're writing software, the most clear explanation of what you want is the actual code that you're trying to write. Like that's actually the specification you're kind of just when you're coding you're kind of just creating specifications and encoded of what mm-hmm. you want and uh you know as a as a manager or leader you're not going to go down to that depth but you want to make it clear enough technology is one place where i think going down to even some of the times the level of pseudocode or things that you want to see is not that bad of a thing i think you know maybe in other areas it might be a little too much or a little too uh too in the weeds for people clarity is a tough one because words i think mean different things in different contexts to different folks mm-hmm. and you're always kind of searching for the best way to address the person you're, you're trying to address on their terms and at the same time creating a shared understanding between which is a challenge multiple like- people that's the challenge actually kind of yeah there are i've always said there are two types of presenters and there are presenters that are somewhat hit or miss because they say it the same way every time. Yeah. And yeah. when they say it right and they hit the right audience, it's spectacular. Uh, and this, this goes all up to very senior execs I've seen over the years. Or someone that actually sort of figures out the audience either in advance or real time by looking at what's happening and then tailoring the message for that audience to get a much better acceptance of it. And I think there's a blend, of course. There's never one thing. It's a good skill. It's a blend yeah. of how that works, right? Yeah. I mean... 
just that skill that you mentioned, just the ability to communicate to different folks in their own language and, you know, meaning the same thing or, you know, meaning just enough. This is, this is kind of how I imagine like, you know, like real estate developers, you got to bring like five different parties. You got the government, you got the money, you've got the construction, you got to bring all these people together. Like kind of imagine them. You're always talking on the same language. You're kind of creating the same story. This building's going to go up and it's going to cost around this much. Sometimes shaving edges off here and there to the different stories, but you're trying to triangulate mm-hmm. to the shared understanding between all these different folks involved in, in this deal and talking in their own terms. Um, and just that ability alone, that's a career. Uh, if, that's you, amazing. if you can nail that down. Yeah. What are your thoughts then in terms of you've got to both deliver to your right audience, but you're asking for them to be diverse in their thinking. That you're know, one of the flaws in, in in data science, of course, is that maybe you don't have enough data or you don't have enough diversity as you're thinking about the solution that you're going to deliver. Again, that we talked earlier on about the breadth of what you offer. So talk about a diversity of data, diversity of data team, just what how that means, because there's so much to get this right. And there's so much that if you can have massive amount of data, but it's not diverse enough. Yeah, I think it always helps with communication like this to different parties and talking on their terms. Cut through the noise of all the abstraction of language as quickly as possible and get to the concrete of uh, you know, in this case, what shows up on your screen. I always kind of mm. use that term. What do I expect to see on my screen when X is finished or, you know, after 60 days, what, what are we going to see on my screen that I can't see right now? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to log in to see it? What is, you know, what am I going to enter in and what am I going to see? It, it helps. I feel like to go in that concrete perspective, because then you're actually thinking in terms of expectations of what you want to see. And you're thinking in very concrete terms of actually what's possible. And you can start, you can start conversations like that even better than just conversing about that is actually showing something concrete. So that's where, Mm. you know, the MVP story uh, really gains traction. Sure. Showing mock-ups are good. I've pushed the team in a way when we're developing products, I've I've been pushing the team recently to uh, upfront de-emphasize model accuracy or algorithm accuracy up front to build the full product and show something concrete with the knowledge that there's a very, you know, there's a pretty linear path towards improving that prediction, let's just say, in, in, in terms of accuracy. But putting that prediction in the context of a product, by the way, this has the, this has the advantage of uh, aligning all of engineering product and data science at the beginning of a project because you don't want to waste a lot of cycles just optimizing the accuracy of an algorithm and then go integrate it. That's another handoff. You know, focus is kind of lost over time between the teams that you got to come back and then regroup and integrate. We've had some good success with that. I feel like it's nice. been um, nice. really de-emphasizing up front the model accuracy, getting a full end-to-end product that does the job, but we know we can do better. And then you have a really nice, neat interface as the data scientist to iterate on your model and you know exactly where that file is going to go or where that model is going to go and it gets picked up by the system. And so let me just drill to make sure I understand it because there's there's two ways I can, I can see this going. So I get, don't go deep, deep, deep and spend forever in the model because that's just a piece of the solution. It's all got it. So you need to have all the, all the scaffolding up, start to finish. But would you say, what I want to see on my screen after 60 days is analysis of the snack market. And then later you could show me the juice 
or is it the breadth of the store? So when you talk about yeah. show me, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Probably context dependent uh, on what mm-hmm. you're trying to see, mm-hmm. you know, the risk of just segmenting out, you know, uh, you always want to take out a subset of the problem, but do you want to, you know, it's like, which subset do you want to take out just one category, as you say, or, um, totally get what you're saying. It's hard to even describe where you're going. Yeah. I don't think I want to do the snack market. Cause I, I need to snap next to, snacks next to the drinks. Otherwise I'm the, of that, right. Come on. That's the risk is that yeah. you, you, you kind of, it's the risk is you kind of overfit to snacks. I yeah. just had a conversation yeah. about this today and you kind of, um, you know, you come up with a solution that's really good to snacks and you go, uh, to, to sodas and, you know, it's just not working. It's just not having exactly. so it's a completely different category. Um, so to have some of that generality, it, it's context dependent, but you, yeah, you want to think along that generality dimension of yeah. What's don't overfit is a great takeaway though. Don't overfit. Recognize that a solution such as yours, such as so broad across a, a, what a store has to offer with the amount of data you have, you got to be careful. Obviously everything is a balance. You like yeah. to talk about communications and how do people get a message and communicate what a lion is to someone that doesn't know what a lion is. is that your, can you just talk about that? Can I, I just find that interesting. Thinking about people in the middle ages uh, in Europe, they didn't know a lot of what we know today, probably including they probably never saw a lion. Like you probably never traveled to Africa and he didn't have TV and he didn't really have books uh, you know, that much either. So it's really easy to make assumptions. I guess the takeaway is about historically whether that's the middle ages or whether that's your, your company, like last year, it's really easy to make assumptions uh, uh, about what they knew or the, you know, their competence uh, in a way. And those assumptions aren't, you know, it, it's really tough to, to put yourself in those shoes. Those assumptions aren't always uh, accurate and it's, it's tough. You know, it's good to always go through the exercise and really try to put yourself in their shoes, I suppose, and, and see, but there's just so many, it's just such a different experience. Thanks for joining us, Brian. It was great that we started chatting about product development and we end up in the Middle Ages. I really appreciate you giving us the time. 